wonderful. There we are. Luke 18, 1 to 8, the parable of the persistent widow. And uh, I want to come to this uh, story because we're looking at prayer and I'm in, in a sense in the foothills of this sort of sermon series. Um, we've looked at prayer in the, in the, when I've been preaching in the morning, a, a broad definition. It's, it's access to God. It's, uh, it's, it's knowledge of God as Father, which comes through the Son and by the inspiration and power of the Spirit. And uh, I've looked recently at some of the stumbling blocks when we come to think about prayer, the preparation of prayer, what have been the stumbling blocks? And I want to elaborate on one of those. Uh, I, I posited two. One is the belief that God isn't able to answer our prayers. Um, uh, there's so much that we can do. We don't kind of need God. We've got technology when we can work it. Um, and, and that means that you know, we can run our lives. We've got instant access to so much information through the World Wide Web. We don't really need God. Actually, you don't need to come to him. We can live our lives fine without him. Um, he's not really able to do anything about that. We've rendered God impotent. Is perhaps one reason why we don't come to God in prayer. Uh, and second, and this is really what I want to elaborate on, and possibly more likely, actually, is we begin to tell ourselves that God is not willing to answer our prayer. That God is not willing to answer our prayer. Because he's so busy. God. I mean... There's a whole cosmos out there that needs running. I mean, if any of you keep a car, you know what it's like. There's always bits and pieces going wrong and different things to do on it. You change the oil and check the tires and the battery and then that's broken or that's fallen off. Or, my goodness, that's just a car. So you imagine the, the whole entire universe. Uh, so, of course, God hasn't got time for, for me. He, he, he's just not willing, really to listen, to spend time, to answer our prayers. And in Luke chapter 18, Jesus has been teaching, in in, in 17, he's been teaching about the coming kingdom of God. And implicit in that, I guess, is is that the times will get tough. The times will be difficult. It, It will be costly to live for God and to live kingdom life, if you like, Kingdom life is really anywhere where God is allowed to king it. It will be tough. And so he tells the disciples this parable to encourage them. And um, just to remind ourselves, two people in this story. One is a widow. Uh, Now nowadays, through all these kind of insurance schemes and so on, if you find yourself in the unfortunate position of being a widow, you can be quite well off through sort of insurances and and that kind of thing. Um, But in those days, in Jesus' time... A widow was arguably one of the most defenceless people in society. You had no family to rely on. You had no land. Uh, you were a woman and therefore you had no political rights. Uh, you were right at the bottom of the pile. The lowest of the low. And in this story, the, the widow, it's even worse for her because she's got an enemy, an adversary. Someone who's out, I don't know, to get her last drop of money or to abuse her in some way. And the only thing she's got recourse to is, is the justice system. And it goes from bad to worse because the judge that she appeals to in the story that Jesus tells is an unjust judge. He doesn't fear God, verse 4 we're told, and he doesn't care what people think. So he's certainly not going to care about this poor woman in her plight. And yet in the story that Jesus tells, um, 
he ensures that she gets justice. Verse 5, because this widow keeps bothering me, it's lovely polite in the NIV, polite English, um, literally, the word bothering there in the Greek is literally blackens my eye. Because this woman keeps blackening my eye. I mean, you can imagine, it's kind of almost like a sort of Monty Python type figure. Oi, Mr. Cat! You're bashing away, I'm not going to give up, I'm not going away, until I get justice. And, and the judge is so, kind of, in the story, get the enterprise, he's so worn out, he's, oh, please, I'll just give the woman justice just to get her away from me, to stop her blackening my eye, as the Greek would have it. And so we come to conclusion uh, as Christians, perhaps. Now, I wonder whether you've drawn this conclusion as we read this story just now, or, or maybe you're familiar with it, and it's something that resides in you from the past. The conclusion is, um, as, we, as we read this story that Jesus tells as an allegory, and an allegory is just when elements of the story have a truth outside of the story. And so we begin to make comparisons. And we say, ah, oh, yeah, I get it. Um, we are like the widow. We are weak and defenseless and we need God. And God is like the judge, very important, uh, way above us. Far greater things to concern himself with than us, a kind of widow type. And so if we're going to get anything out of God, if God is going to hear us, any plea that we may have, anything that's on our heart, then we've got to just keep on badgering away. We've got to blacken God's eye and eventually, you never know what, he might give us what we're asking. Just pause for a moment. Does that, does that resonate with... Um, how we thought perhaps in general about God and, and, and particularly when we think in terms of prayer. Is that what you think Jesus is teaching here, I wonder? Is that what I think he's teaching here? Is this allegorical where there are kind of direct links with the story Jesus tells and the application that we're meant to make? No, no, no. And four times no. Verse 1. Jesus told his disciples a parable. It's not an allegory. It's a parable. What's a parable? A parable is a story that we think is going one way. We go, oh, I can see where Jesus is going with this. And just when we get nice and complacent and we think we know where Jesus is going with the story, he goes, bam! And he delivers a sucker punch. He wrong-foots us. He completely subverts the way in which the story was going to wake us up and make us have to work really hard at what he's really getting at. If you look at a number of the parables that Jesus tells, you can almost hear his listeners going, oh, I know where he's going with this one. Jesus tells them, I imagine, as a sort of shaggy dog story or a familiar sort of fable, an urban myth, if you like. We go, oh, yeah, and we get lulled. And then, no, it's not what you're thinking. And this parable is a parable, it's a story that Jesus has made up. I don't know, I mean, I'm sure there were widows all around. I'm sure there were judges who abused their authority. But I don't know if there was a particular widow and a particular judge. But this, this story that Jesus has made up is a story of contrasts. They're not similarities in the story and us. They're contrasts. We're not like the widow. Weak and defenseless. I mean, in one sense, we are outside of Christ. But Jesus has come, and Paul picks up this theme when he realizes what Jesus has done through his death and resurrection. He has enabled God to adopt us into his family. Paul writes in the eighth chapter of his letter to the Romans, by the Spirit, we have been adopted 
into God's family. God looks on us as his, his sons and daughters, as his children. Paul has this extraordinary phrase that, that by the doctrine, by the, by the act of adoption, where, where God literally picks and calls us in Christ to come and join him and his family, Paul says we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If we share in his sufferings, and sure, there'll be hard times before Jesus comes again. We live in a broken and messed up world. If we share in his sufferings, in order that we might share in his glory. Heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. No widowdom, if that's a word, for us. No defenselessness, no weakness for us in Christ. Nothing in our own right, but in Christ. We are so powerful. We are so rich. And there's a contrast with the judge as well. We sort of think that the judge is like God. No. No. The judge is there in Jesus' story to contrast with God. Do we really think that God is like that? That we need to badger him before we can get anything? No. The heart of God is to give and to give and to give. He longs to give to his children. The psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And over and over again, the refrain in the Psalms, the Lord is good, the Lord is good. Yeah, there there may be hard times. Israel may have gone through uh, desperate times. The psalmist himself, through troubling times. And yet the Lord is good. The Lord is good. And God has created us with that faint trace of his heart in our hearts. Deep down, don't don't we know that actually we love to give? I know we don't always give. We are not always marked by generosity. But but deep down, isn't there that that kind of God-given desire to to, to give? Think of Christmas. I know when we were kids, you think Christmas is all about getting. You know, how many presents are for me? But but as adults, isn't, isn't the real thrill of Christmas actually seeing all the presents there and knowing that some of those presents are the ones that we have bought for someone else. Because we know, we were thinking about it in in sort of September, October. Well, some of us were, but some of us got to about the 20th of December before we... But hey, we did give it some thought. And uh, we were thinking now, what what would my wife like? What would my children like? And um, I, I remember one actually slightly embarrassing time I thought right I'm going to I am actually going to venture forth into that unknown and dangerous land for a man which is um, the lingerie department and actually that got it just got too much to me I was I was kind of girded on by a colleague at the time I was teaching um, she was a scouser completely I said oh get Joe some knickers get her some lovely knickers and I, I thought okay I'll do I'll do that um, and uh, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't take it. So I had to go, I went to the perfume department and I just, I just stood there and went, essay louder? And, and that seemed to be the magic word and it sort of did for the time. But nevertheless, you, you can make a real effort and you wrap it up. And, and the real joy, isn't the real joy when you see the recipient of the gift that you've spent time thinking about and agonising over, you, you've paid the money for, you've wrapped it up and all the while you've been anticipating, haven't you? The, the joy on their face as they open it. 
We serve and live for a heavenly father who loves to give. That's why Jesus taught us, when the disciples in, earlier on in Luke came to Jesus and said, Jesus, please teach us to pray. And he said, when you pray, say, our father. Intimate access with a father who loves to give. Which father doesn't in his heart of hearts, I know all fathers mess it up. I'm a father and I, I know from personal experience I, I fall short of the standard I even set for myself. But I know deep down I love to give. I'm not like the judge. As I'm just telling the congregation this morning, um, I will never forget when I took my son, Luke, to his first live football match. And part of the joy was because Luke had been, he was only about six at the time, and he'd been lulled into this sense that by virtue of watching um, the highlights on the telly, and the telly screen's you know, about that big, and so the players are about, and he thought that the play, when he was sitting in the center, that the players would be that big. He thought they'd be sort of one centimeter high, and he, he'd sort of, you know, just be able, and he kept on asking questions like, you know, where will we sit? And I said, well, we, we might be a little far back, I don't know where, exactly where we'll be. So when we, when we arrived at the stadium, and bear in mind, the biggest number of people that he'd ever seen at that time was probably a school assembly, like a number of people in one place at one time. And we got these tickets for Chelsea, 40,000 people, completely blew his little mind. You know, he'd been used to sort of, <laughs> I don't know, a few hundred maybe. And suddenly he's in this place with so many people. And the pitch was this close, he could see the blades of grass. And Frank Lampard was there. It just, I mean, his eyes were on stalks, and he, he just, he was thrilled with the whole day. He loved it. Absolutely loved it. Apart from when they scored. And actually, as it turns out, Chelsea won 5 0. Five goals. Um, but every single goal he missed. Because you see, all the adults could anticipate the play, and they knew when a goal was just about to happen, the shot or the cross or something. So they all stood up in anticipation to cheer. And of course, all these adults just went like this. And poor Luke, what happened? <laughs> Lights turned out. So I had to kind of lift him up. Uh, so that he could see the replay on the screen. So he, he saw them 30 seconds after everyone else. But he loved it. He loved the day. But here's the point. My, my confession, as an imperfect father who often gets it wrong, Luke loved the day, but not half as much as I loved watching Luke love the day. I mean, as I, as I tell the story, the hairs are standing on the back of my back of my neck. It was just the perfect day. And I, it will live longer in my memory than I'm sure it will in his, even though it's still pretty relevant in his. Which father doesn't long to pour blessing out for their children? Now, in, let's just turn to this, just back a few pages, Luke chapter 11, um, which is where Luke records Jesus teaching on prayer. And we have this template there, page 984, we have this template for um, the Lord's Prayer. And then he has um, a similar kind of story about a friend who has someone staying, going to another friend at midnight, and, and this kind of you know, knocking or badgering of someone for, for help. And uh, then we have in verse 9 of chapter 11, So I say, ask, and it will be given. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. In other words, be persistent in prayer, like in Luke 18. But look at this, verse 11. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit 
to those who ask him. Give the Spirit, who brings life, the life of God into our lives. How much more? You know how to do it, and you're just frail human beings. Then how much more will your Father in heaven? And that how much more construct is echoed here in Luke 18. Just turn back with me. And verse 7 of chapter 18 It's the same kind of construct, the same kind of weight that Luke is wanting to give. And will not God bring about justice? He said, look, if the judge eventually gives justice and he doesn't care about God and doesn't care about people, how much more will God, by contrast, give justice to those who cry out to him day and night? Of course he will. Of course he will. Because God as the Father is not like the judge in the story. The Bible commands that we don't put the Lord God to the test. And yet God himself says in Malachi chapter 3, test me in this. Israel, if you you will, the people of Israel, if you will follow my commands, if you will walk in my ways, if you won't pay lip service to me with sort of prayers that just sort of you chuck out, and if you won't just give a little bit of your half-hearted offerings, but give the whole of yourself to me, test me, he says, test me. And see if I won't pour open the floodgates of heaven to bless you. It's it's God's heart to bless and to give, to release his life and his uh, uh, blessing to his children. And how twisted we become in that. Our hearts so often shrink back from echoing the generosity and the gift of God. I was convicted of that just the other day um, when I came in and uh, there was a little present. There was, there was something on the kitchen table and I said to, to Joe, my wife, I said, what's that? She said, it's a present. I said, who's it for? She said, it's for you. And my next question is the most revealing one. I said, why? Inference, what have I done to deserve it? You know, is there? I feel quite convicted even speaking this out now because can you see how far away my heart is? Like, I, it's, I've got to earn. I've got to earn stuff. I've, I've got to have done something in order to have received a gift. Joe's response to my question, why, reveals how her heart is so much closer to the heart of God than mine. She said, because I saw it and I thought you'd like it. How wonderful. Just just, hey, my heart is to bless. That's God's heart. And so often we think, oh, well, I've got to do something to earn it. Haven't I? I've got to do something. No. Just receive and live and bask in the fact that God loves to give. He loves to bless. So Jesus teaches, verse 1 of chapter 18, this parable, to the disciples to show that they should always pray and not give up because living in the kingdom is tough sometimes we live in in an imperfect and, and broken world tough things happen things that we don't understand things that we can't explain and yet we come with confidence to a heavenly father who loves to give good things
That's why Jesus finishes with this question. The issue isn't whether God loves to give. The issue isn't whether the Father is generous, whether he loves the children. The issue is, will the Son of Man find faith in those children to continue to persist in praying? And we persist in prayer not because if we badger God, we might squeeze something out of him. We persist in prayer because it's such a privilege. What a gift. Use it. This access to God. Um, I want to show in just a few minutes, if we can, this uh, clip that um, you might have seen on, on, on YouTube. Um, I, when I saw it, it just reminds me of the fact, linked to what I've been trying to say, that the membrane between heaven and the realities of heaven and the superficiality of earth, that membrane is very thin. We, we see the superficiality of earth around us all the time and every now and then the membrane's ruptured and heaven breaks in and we see the reality and I think um, this uh, clip that we'll see in just a few minutes I wonder, I've got something to read to tee it up this clip is an indication of heaven breaking in on earth and an indication of what the Father's heart is for us and I hope it's an inspiration for us to, to reach out to our Father in heaven and to delight in the privilege of prayer as access to all the riches of heaven. In the clip, you're going to see Dick Hoyt and his son, Rick. Let me just read to you what uh, you can download on the YouTube. Um, 85 times, Dick, that's the father, has pushed his disabled son, Rick, 26.2 miles in marathons. Dick's also pulled him across country skiing, taken him on his back, mountain climbing, and once hauled him across the United States on a bike. It makes taking your son bowling sound a little lame, doesn't it, the writer says. And what has Rick done for his father? Not much. This love story began in Winchester, Massachusetts, 43 years ago, when Rick was strangled by the umbilical cord during birth, leaving him brain damaged and unable to control his limbs. He'll be a vegetable the rest of his life, doctors told Dick and his wife Judy. And when Rick was nine months old, they were advised to put him in an institution. But the Hoyts weren't buying it. They noticed the way Rick's eyes followed him around the room. When Rick was 11, they took him to the engineering department at Tufts University and asked if there was anything to help the boy communicate. No way, Dick was told. There's nothing going on in his brain. Tell him a joke, Dick counted. They did, and Rick laughed it turns out there was a lot going on in his brain. They rigged up a computer that allowed him to control the cursor by touching a switch with the side of his head. And Rick was finally able to communicate. And what were his first words? Go, brains. And after a high school classmate was paralysed in an accident and the school organised a charity run for him, Rick pecked out, Dad, I want to do that. <laughs> yeah, right. How was Dick, a self-described porker, who'd never run more than a mile at a time, going to push his son five miles? But still, he tried. As Dick says, then it was me who was handicapped. I was sore for two weeks. But that day changed Rick's life. Dad, he typed out, when we were running, it felt like I wasn't disabled anymore. 
And that sentence changed Dick's life. He became obsessed with giving Rick that feeling as often as he could. He got into such a hard belly shape that he and Rick were ready to try a marathon in 1979. In 1983, they ran a marathon so fast that they made the qualifying time for Boston the following year. And then somebody said, hey, Dick, why not try a triathlon? How's a guy who's never learned to swim and hadn't ridden a bike since he was six going to haul his 110-pound kid through a triathlon? But Dick tried. Now they've done 212 triathlons together, including four grueling 15-hour Ironmans in Hawaii. That's um, three-mile swim, 120-mile bike, I think, followed by a marathon. It must be a bit of a bummer, the writer says here, to be a 25-year-old stud getting passed by an old guy towing a grown man in a dinghy, don't you think? Hey, Dick, he was once asked, why not see how you do on your own? No way, he says. Dick does it purely for the awesome feeling he gets of seeing Rick with the biggest grin on his face as they run, swim and ride together. This year, at ages 65 and 43, Dick and Rick finished their 24th Boston Marathon. They came in 5,083rd place out of about 20,000 competitors. Their best time is 2 hours 40 minutes, which they set in 1992. Only 35 minutes off the world record, which, in case you don't keep track of these things, happens to be held by a guy who was not pushing another man in a wheelchair at the time. There's no question about it, Rick types. My dad is the father of the century. Rick, who owns his own apartment, he gets home care, and works in Boston, and Dick always find time to be together. They give speeches around the country and compete in some back-breaking race every weekend. And at the end of the race, Rick will always buy his dad dinner. But the thing he really wants to give him is a gift he can never buy. The thing I'd most like, Rick types, is that my dad sits in the chair and just for once, I push him. Let's see if we can watch the clip of them together. (laughs) 